We were greeted at the courthouse by a flurry of reporters and government workers. Wading through the sea of humanity, we found our contact, who explained that we were not actually on trial, but being called to help with the committee hearing as experts in the subject of comics. Taking our seats with the rest of the committee, we sat, looking for opportunities to shed light on the industry that was now under fire. Hi, my name is John. And I'm Matthew. And we are the DC Detectives. It is our job to go back through the annals of DC Comics history and chronicle the evolution of all your favorite heroes from start to every... Ver eh. ah, again, second time in a row. It's, it's cool. Every reversible finish. It's fine, see? We reversed Every it. retcon. Every retcon. There, we're done. I, either of those. Because <laughs> um, there have been a few. Just a, just a little fun thought that I had had previous to this. I had spoken with somebody about this earlier, uh, I want to say a few weeks ago. I just realized that what we do is the just an equivalent for fun book report. Yeah, because book reports did have that like mixture of plot summary, but also a lot of hey, here's the context, here's how it achieves these things. Like it really it it's an AP English essay. Yeah, so huh. we uh, we do that for fun. <laughs> Uh, just to... Aw, Mrs. Mallor would be so proud of me. Yeah, uh, I'm sure all my English teachers would be thoroughly disappointed um, that I'm still doing this. Um, <laughs> because they hated all my reports because they were too long. Um, oh, oh, you were one of those. No, I'm there with you. Dude, you've listened to our summaries. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, hi, welcome to this podcast where it's going to be a little bit more report than book. I literally have a script. <laughs> Good. Uh, yeah, uh, this is going to be Matt driving the show because we're going to be talking a lot of history and context because we we feel we have thoroughly covered the golden age in the last thirty seven episodes. Um, you know, <laughs> oh, I'll, wow, it is. Yeah, I'll say thirty five because one of those was a fan fiction and the other one was the two of us talking about ourselves. And they're the they were the tooth koi. Yeah. Okay. So. 33, 33 episodes, that 33 right. episodes of the Golden Age, you know, 33 <laughs> hours for you to, to peruse and learn and listen about Golden Age characters, not a thing, so, um... I feel like most of them average around an hour five, so really 34 hours. Yeah, I just round up to make it sound even more prolific. Uh, yeah, you've, you've, you know what's going on here, and there's a reason we're moving on to the Silver Age, because it's going to be a lot more plot heavy and more fun i think it'll be a little bit more fun because it's going to be more storytelling than just another bank robbery another mobster but that being said there is a historical real life event and series of events that occur that are important to note the difference between the gold and the silver age and that is what matt is going to be talking about today for all of you confused as to why some of these characters disappeared from the Golden Age and why they got rebooted and why there's a difference between Alan Scott and Hal Jordan or Jay Garrick and Barry Allen. So this real-life event kind of is the reason for that. And Matt will take it away. Joanne, you're off for the night. Okay. But but can you, like, bring us coffee? Because this is going to take a little bit of energy. Because, like the, yeah. Like, like I said, I, I have a script. Uh... It is a bullet point script, and I'm probably going to wind up putting it on uh, the website at some point. Yeah. But yes, uh, this is the best way I can think of to describe this is sort of similar to how I dis I wound up describing Ten Cent Plague, which is one of our major sources for this, a Dan Carlin podcast, where it is fundamentally a narrative 
of what happened in a given period with a whole lot of research into it, but not uh, like footnotes. Yes. Uh, tables. No, would sort of be the way I put it. It's not a textbook. It's a History Channel special. Oh, but they just cover aliens now. Yeah. yeah. And Hitler. Well, I think... Weird. The weird thing is, I think that's actually gotten a whole lot less. Hmm. It's weird. It's but very yeah. strange. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> this is your, this is history, your history channels channel. aside. Yeah, this is your History Channel special uh, from us. Mm-hmm. So, got some starting notes that'll help sort of frame this. So, our objective here is to look at the creation of the comics code the period leading up to it, and the crash that hit comics shortly thereafter. This is going to be both a history of that period and an attempt to explain why that happened the way it did. So we're primarily talking 1947 to 1955, but there's going to be some earlier chunks. Uh, And for those of you playing at home, the year we ended up stopping on the most with a lot of these characters was 45-46. So we uh, did, I think... Black Canary was as far as we got, and that was 47 until, like, mid-48, I want to say. I think, yeah, I think, she, I think she was 46 to, like, 49. Um, just for reference, some of this will be happening post where some of the plot has happened. Again, we will probably come back mm-hmm. to the Golden Age after this just for shits and giggles and to talk about some other stuff for reference, but historically this will have probably taken place a year or so after where the podcast has left off so primary source or not primary sources but the primary sources that we're using uh are the 10 cent plague which we've sort of talked about and uh i also drew on the seal of approval the history of the comics code i don't remember offhand who that's by but uh, an academic that one's more of an academic text also wikipedia because it's kind of helpful for laying things out simply and easy to read. We're not going to spend much time talking about the results of the Comics Code after that period. We're certainly going to get into like the immediate repercussions of the Code and other developments right at that time, but I'm not going to so much be looking at like long-term what kinds of stories we're able to be told like in that next 10 years. Uh, we'll probably touch briefly, like we all know the story of... Uh, trying to get the speedy uh, story run through. Same with uh, Harry Osborn uh, and that being a drug tale that they were, uh, a cautionary tale about drugs that they were trying to get through the code. Uh, probably not going to spend too much time about that kind of stuff, we'll probably We'll probably cover the Green Arrow speedy storyline when we get to that yeah. in Silver Age. So, But yeah, understand that stuff like that is stuff that was difficult to do under the code. And that's why those sort of ring out to us so loudly as, really, as condemnations of the code in some ways. Yeah, uh, specifically for those of you who want to look this up, who have no idea what we're talking about, we're referencing the storyline Snowbirds Don't Fly. That's the name of it. Which is a Green Arrow, Green Lantern storyline. You could probably, like, literally if you Google that, the first thing you're going to see is probably the cover of it, which is Speedy shooting up heroin as Green Lantern reveals the scene to Green Arrow. And that's... Yeah, that's a thing. That's like a really big shocking thing. So that was difficult under the code. Uh, Also, Proviso. I'm not a historian or a grad student. I've done some research and thought critically about what what I've read, but I'm not a professional. You'll learn stuff, but don't cite me in a thesis. But uh, anyways, here is the executive summary of what we're going to be talking about, and then I'll get into the actual like meat of it. 
The comics landscape was hugely different during the Golden Age. After about 1947, comics were much less prominent. Or, uh, sorry, superheroes were much less prominent. Comics were mostly romance, crime, and horror. Those are the genres that the comics code is going to react to, primarily. Honestly, superheroes are just going to kind of be collateral damage. The Red Scare, the Lavender Scare, I'll explain that a bit, uh, and the Moral Panics over comics were all reactions to hetero heterodox ways of thinking and being. And Moral Panics were especially ways to enforce that on children who parents felt were increasingly slipping out of their control. The science cited by Moral Crusaders was spurious, but a lot of the content that they hated probably would not be allowed today for kids, even today, uh, who were the primary audience for comics. And last bit of the, of the executive summary, comics creators undermined their defenses in the content of their stories, how available they were to kids, and the way that they handled controversy. Now. I'm going to break this down into a couple different eras, mostly based on the kinds of, of comics that were really popular at that point. We'll see uh, some real waves of fads and comic genres, rather than the unchallenged superhero dominance that really is what we're used to. Like, even now, if you're looking at the direct market, it's, it's still superhero comics. You go beyond the direct market, you get trade paperbacks, you get web comics especially. Like, okay, we finally got some challenges to the dominance of superheroes, but that's kind of what we think of. But uh, what we had was superheroes from 1938 to 1947, crime comics from 48 to 50, romance from 50 to 52, horror from 52 to 54, and then I'll, I'm, I've got a chunk that I just refer to as the finale from 54 to 55. So we're starting at the beginning with superheroes. You've heard us talk a lot about this, as it turns out. Weirdly enough, there's about 33 episodes about it. Fun fact. You <laughs> should check that out. Flesh lenses. Flesh sacks. Well, th there was that, but... Oh, flesh-colored lenses. Flesh-colored right. lenses and flesh sacks, man. For the record, you can understand that reference and more if you just go back through the archive. <laughs> yeah. It's not as creepy as it sounds, but it's still pretty creepy. It could be if you're weirded out by flesh-colored lenses. Fun fact, we've got a whole section here on horror that I'm going to get to later on, and trust me, it's creepy. <laughs> uh, so, starting off with the superhero era. There were certainly comics before this, but the debut of superhero comics were what really turned it into an industry. Uh, in 1940, like, we've talked about how big uh, Superman comics distribution was. In 1940, Superman comics were selling 1.25 million copies per month. By comparison, in 1940... The population of the U.S. was just 132 million. The other thing to remember is that kids are passing those comics around. So the actual, like, readership of Superman comics at that point, huge. But here's the number that really kind of gets through, like, how wide readership was in general. In the Golden Age, quote, More than 90% of the children in the 4th, 5th, and 6th grades reported they read comics regularly, averaging at least 10 comics a month. Can you imagine how much money Marvel would have if they were able to reach those same numbers now? It's insane. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, comics were a big deal. And actually, the thing that's, other thing that's interesting with that is 30% of young adults reported reading comic books as well. Even though you had the drop-off as people got older, uh, you still had huge readership. Also worth noting, 
We're talking about the, this is early days, this is 1940. The later genres are going to follow comics readers as they grow, when, when you get uh, romance, when you get uh, crime comics to a degree, but especially romance and horror, are the, oh, I thought I was done with comics. I'm not done with comics. Hmm. Uh, also worth noting, uh, I don't have a quote here for this one, but I do remember reading that at that point, like comics readership was really pre-equal on uh, men and women. Or girls and boys. So yeah, comics, little bit of a big deal. Um, and especially, like, it kind of felt like it came out of nowhere. If you were paying attention, then you saw, like, how big uh, comic strips, like newspaper comic strips, got. Uh, and they went through very much the same kind of uh, sequence that we're going to talk about today of uh, media uproar and then kind of trying to figure that one out. Uh, so... If you weren't watching that, though, this came out of nowhere. So, uh, let's start by talking a little bit about what people were against comics for during the superhero era. Like, people were pissed at comics, but it was different at this point. Um, the strikes against comics were mostly that they were just bad literature. Uh, very much, it was the anti-millennial, you damn kids are tied to your screens instead of a newspaper. It's a very elitist and academic view of moral crusading, that comics were missing the rarities of fine literature. Later on, we're going to have moral crusades on moral content and whether it inspires people to do bad things. Here, it's just, these are bad books. These are bad books that are uh, corrupting kids for not liking good books. Uh, whatever the fineries are of literature, it's not here. Uh, it wasn't until after the war, as superheroes started to stall out, that comics became linked in the public consciousness with juvenile delinquency. You'll hear me use that term a lot. I'll talk a little more about what people sort of meant by that. Hint, it's a, sort of a catch-all. Uh, but that linkage between comics and juvenile delinquency was made by Frederick Wortham, a psychiatrist with a self-aggrandizing streak, and he is the one who had uh, Seduction of the Innocent later on. At this phase, it's not even Seduction of the Innocent. He's just publishing that comics are corrupting people, uh, kids are see seeing bad things. The pivot to moral indecency happens here with Frederick Wortham. I mentioned that I'd talk a little bit about juvenile delinquency. Here's where we do it. By the way, be prepared. There are going to be a bunch of points throughout this where I kind of get to a point in the story where I have to jog off to a different track talk about something else to bring it back in, because real history, it turns out, is complicated. Uh, comics started to explode after the end of the Great Depression and the institution of child labor laws. That means that a new generation was growing up with time and with money, which meant they could afford to dress differently, to have their own subculture, be visibly different from their parents. Uh, zoot suits are a great example of a visibly different youth subculture. And there were military and civilian riots against them, especially because many Zoot Suiters were people of color. You know the phrase, uh, the song Zoot Suit Riots? Uh, that is because there were literal riots uh, by naval personnel and white uh, Los Angeles folks. Uh, Los Angel Angelinos? Los Angelinos. Los Angelinos. Really? Los? Okay. Or Fair Angelinos. Okay. But I guess that's the one I've sort of always heard for whatever reason. Yeah, but One way or another, Los Angeles folks. Uh, because here were these... Uh, folks, people of color, in gaudy, lots of fabric clothes at a time when there was rationing. Although, most of the people who had it 
either like maybe they got it off the black market, but quite likely they just already owned them. So you had these moral crusades against youth who were adopting heterodox ways of living cultures, very similar to the swing, uh, swing generation in Germany, which is its own separate thing. Uh, two, two things. Mm-hmm. There's a movie about that. I, I might have seen that. I think it's just called Swing. I, I may have seen that. It's a good movie. Uh, does it end, like, is it ending with uh, kids seeing, like, I think his older brother is being dragged away, and he's yelling, Swing Heil? Yeah. Which okay. is a... Weird. Like, that's a good, ironic, like, subversion of uh, of a calling card of a fascist regime. Christian Bale's in it. Oh, really? Yeah, young Christian Bale, and young Doctor, the, the, the sidekick to House... <laughs> I know he's, what you he's, mean. He's in that. I can't picture. I can't uh, remember but that's the first point. Second point: for those who are unfamiliar with the lingo of our time, can you explain heterodox? Yes. Uh, so heterodox is basically the inverse of uh, orthodox. It is a way of thinking that is divergent from the mainstream. Not just the mainstream, but what is uh, what the authority figures. Are trying to impose. Uh, so, for instance, the beatnik uh, lifestyle would absolutely the flower gener- flower power generation would absolutely have been heterodox ways of thinking. Uh, like right now, uh, or maybe in the '80s, uh, gaming and uh, comics culture, somewhat heterodox, tends to be a little bit more culture rather than just what you consume, though. Grunge. The yeah. grunge yeah. culture from the nineties. Emo would absolutely be emo heterodox. heterodox. Yeah. Yeah. Scene. Yeah. Scene and emo. Mm-hmm. Okay. There you go. For those of you who grew up in the last few decades. Yeah. Uh, this was all and this was all happening at the same time as cars were granting new independence to teenagers. Like you'll hear the invention of the teenager, like that sense of a an age group dating back to the forties or the fifties. As adults notice and started panicking over uh, youth looking different, living different, police started cracking down on them. So even though this is just perception, really, there was the perception that youth crime increased because the arrest had increased uh, and people were just looking for it more. Uh, Add in the perception that youth ideas and morals and values are being corrupted by these heterodox subcultures, uh, and you've got what people call juvenile delinquency a bit of a catch-all term for fear of and for the young and that's what comics were blamed as causing pivoting from concerns about literature to moral concerns comics were being read mainly by kids and many read or viewed comics as undermining authority and that's what Wortham will always sort of hammer home and we'll see that come back to bite everybody later in the actual code uh Transitioning back to the history now, uh, or the comics history, you might remember that when we read Black Canary, it ended really abruptly, halfway through that volume. Uh, it got through, and then suddenly there was a lost issue, a lost story, and then it was Silver Age stories. Because Flash Comics was canceled in 1949. Uh, it was part of a general turn away from superhero comics. The biggest names kept going. Superman, uh, Batman, I don't know about Wonder Woman, but I believe it surprised so. me. Yeah, uh, but a lot of the B-listers were canceled uh, because the money in comics switched over to crime. It is worth noting, 
this is really like the I guess the superhero comics crash happens at this stage rather than later on before really public indignation really gets going uh, but then we get to crime comics and here's where things start to really accelerate you'll notice that superhero comics like that era was I think I have it, had it down for like nine years uh, we're gonna start entering like the era of two years at a time so crime comics kind of got their start at 1946 in, in 1946 at 3% of all comics and then it ramps up to 14% by 1948 but they're always going to be what people latch on to like in terms of what people are responding to what they're afraid of it's crime comics that's what people build the legislation around uh, when we were reading golden age comics we talked a lot about the comics being pretty softball with the good guys being perfect and if the bad guys died we kind of took it as a surprise and the deaths were bloodless and oh boy welcome to crime comics yeah yeah <laughs> uh, there are two com two covers that really illustrate it and mind you these are the covers not even the insides uh normally you'd think like the inside would be uh where you put the really salacious stuff and the front is a little bit sanitized uh, these are example like these are uh, probably cherry picked not intentionally so much like I, I did actually just Google uh, crime does not pay covers but because people have been talking about these same a couple covers over and over again uh, it just kind of naturally that's the one that everybody notices so maybe some unintentional cherry picking but uh, crime does not pay issue 22 has two giant hands on the cover one stabbing a knife down and through the other, and the knife is poking through the other side. It's not, you don't see any blood, but that the hands are black and white, and it's not quite clear. Maybe there, it almost looks like there might be some, uh, some uh, liquid on there. Not entirely clear. Issue 24, a criminal is holding a woman's head over a stove burner with fire not quite touching her face, but her hair is definitely on fire. Like she's doing the, like this kind of, Looking down like three-quarter angle at the burner, uh, her hair is definitely on fire, and you, you do have the you have cop coming in through the window who's about to save the day, but you don't see any blood. You don't see any, like, damage from the fire, but you know, she, I mean, she's getting her face crisped. Yeah, it's, it's the implied uh, mutilation, dismemberment, disfiguration. Yep, and we'll get to more than implied later on with horror, but at this point... The stuff that gets referenced is violent, but it's still mo it's still bloodless by and large, or it's just blood rather than disfigurement. But it's much more of that and more focused on than in uh, Superman, for instance. Like, actually, one of the things that occurs to me is like in the Superman comics, when you see a cop die, it's kind of like someone from uh someone in a getaway car is like speeding away and shooting a pistol and they're at the far end of the panel and then you see the cop like falling at the in the foreground right as compared to like one of the ones that people brought up as oh this is the most indecent stuff ever is a uh, woman standing over a, like directly right over a cop on the ground and shooting him in the back right uh it's still kind of tame by modern standards in a lot of ways but it's certainly a chunk more 
Yeah, the closest thing that I could equate it to from what we have read uh, would be Two-Face getting his face melted. Yeah. Um, but we don't see any of that occur so much as, like, the acid hits him, his face is covered, and then the next time we see it, he's disfigured. Mm-hmm. So it's it's tame, but that's a man getting his face melted. Yep. There's a whole lot of implied violence and disfigurement there. Here I'm going to tangent for a bit. So a lot of this is going to come down to what you think is okay for kids to read. Um, I mentioned that, like, you could kind of tell listening to it, I, I felt weird about the implications of the woman having her head uh, held in the Bunsen burner. Uh, I felt weird about having the knife, like, stabbed through another hand. I'm a bit conservative when it comes to what adults expose kids to. I don't swear around kids. I don't like advertisements or movies that sexualize kids. Uh, and in this case, I'm talking mostly about like probably 15 to 18 or 15 to 17 year olds. Uh, put it this way: I get pissed when people do pinups of uh, Laura Kinney in her pre-time skip costumes because when she's introduced, she is explicitly 15. Uh, so don't do pinup of that. Like. Now, maybe she's 18, so it's in dubious territory, but not bad territory. But I, these are things that I am not always comfortable with. That said, I, I mean, I want my kids to be learning about adult subjects and reading high school, high-tier books, talking about sex, because I plan to be part of those conversations and help contextualize the, their entertainment. But if I'm walking down the kids' aisle at Barnes & Noble and I know that the books around me are being read by kids and I see a book with someone getting their face burnt off, you know, I don't think that's appropriate for a kid. Like, I don't, I can't necessarily quantify what I think is the negative impact there, but I, I mean, I, I think that there are reasonable limits of what should be at least easily available uh, to kids. And to take it to the next tier, let's talk a little bit about what's in the horror comics, because that really does take it to the next tier. Uh, issue 38 of Tales from the Crypt has a man who's so sure that his date is wearing a mask, he rips her face off trying to remove it. And there is a full shot of the woman's face looking at you with all the skin ripped off, just the red tissue behind it. Uh, it's not the okay, here's this, like, monster man look of Two-Face. It's, no, she just got her face ripped off, and you saw it, and now she's staring at you with her face gone. And, yeah, that's a little awkward for me. Uh, And there's a reason that we have age ratings for movies and games now. We didn't necessarily back then. And there's a reason that most movie or book covers tend to be tamer than the contents. Even, like, stepping aside from myself, we as a society have generally agreed that what's easily available to kids, either through browsing, like through shelves, or what they can actually buy, should be appropriate to them. Like, that's kind of where we've fallen on uh, as a society. And that's why we have uh, normal daytime hours. The FCC does not allow certain, I mean, it's the Dan Carlin rule. Uh, only during the safe harbor of, what is it, like 10 o'clock till 5 a.m. or whatever, mm-hmm. that you can say whatever you want. Because we've said, we're making assumptions that kids can't easily get to that stuff at that time. Uh, and at at this time, comics were cheap enough that kids could and did buy them. And even if you said, hey, adults only, that didn't 
mean anything. It actually was really just a marketing gimmick to get more kids to buy them. Right. So we're, a lot of this is going to come down to whether you think it's okay for kids to have that ready of access to this kind of stuff. And I can't entirely say they were wrong for being pissed off about the content. Now, this is not a situation where anybody was right. Uh, certainly not the Moral Crusaders, who, as I'll get into, uh, really played fast and loose with uh, scientific evidence and with uh, context of the cherry-picked examples that they were using. But I can't entirely say they were wrong, and I can't say the comics industry was blameless in this. Uh, so that's sort of a little bit of con contextualizing where all of this is going to go. Uh, and again, another thing to keep in mind is a lot of this stuff, a lot of what people are reacting to, is not superhero comics. It's not the comics we've covered. It's not the comics that we're going to see down the line. What people are reacting to are primarily crime and horror comics. And all the stuff that we've talked about, the, the gruesome imagery in those, and somewhat romance comics, but really... It's the crime and the horror, and everything else is just collateral damage. And and for those who are still like, what the hell is a horror comic? Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Swamp Thing, Tales from the Crypt, I mean... Tales from the Crypt is the best example. But I mean, because, like, those, those, those are the subject matter. I mean, like, not, not mm -hmm. that those were title names, more so, well, like, they were monster. It was like, it's a monster it's, movie comic. It's not just monster movie is the thing. Like, certainly that's absolutely part of it. Uh, like, I had... In some of my notes, I have that era down as just kind of the weird stuff era because it's sci-fi and fantasy and horror. But some of it is also more Poe. Mm. Uh, like Gothic horror? Yeah. Uh, one of the stories that I think actually, it feels like this is sort of emblematic. Rather than like the subject matter, uh, what the characters are like, the supernatural element, more the tone. Uh, this one was... A guy is running a home for the blind, like like a boarding house for blind mm -hmm. folks, and completely just skeezy. Uh, he is skimming money all he can. He's not keeping the place clean. Uh, and there's a dog that he loves that uh, he he doesn't treat well, doesn't like anybody else. And the people who work there, or the people who live there, eventually, like, they've been so put upon, so oppressed, that they kidnap him, shove him into a room, lock him in, and after a while, he, like, he, he knows, like, in the other room, uh, they've been starving the dog, uh, and eventually, like, they let him out, and they're like, hey, we're letting you out, like, just right this way, off to freedom, and he opens the door, and there's a maze, and the maze is full of, like, the walls of the maze are full of razor blades, not a big deal. He can see, like, he just needs to walk carefully, uh, and he just needs to figure out where the exit is. And then he hears them open the door to where the dog is, and the dog starts chasing him through, and so he has to start running. And then someone turns off the lights. Hmm. And it's, like, it actually doesn't have anything visually gory in it, but that's the kind of story. It's, it's almost Twilight Zone-ish. I would have said American Horror Story. 
Quite possibly. Yeah, like American Horror Story or something. uh, Yeah, Twilight Zone. Like like that kind of, here is a story. Like Tales from the Crypt is a great description of it. Because it's like, oh, here's a little short story. uh, Something you'd read about in Creepypasta or something. (laughs) Yeah, Creepypasta is probably even a a better analogy for those who are younger (laughs) uh, in our our listenership. But yeah, so that's the kind of stuff. Like that tone of things. That macabre is a good word for it. There we go, yeah. Always remember, like, as much as we view this from the lens of the modern and golden age superhero, like, comics zeitgeist of superheroes, really kind of just collateral damage. Uh, Except for Wortham. Wortham hated superhero comics. Yeah. But nobody would have listened to him if it weren't for everything else. Uh, This is really where the anti-comics movement gets going. And there are four types of actions that we'll see pretty much throughout the entire period. Like, these are the main tactics of the Moral Crusaders. First, uh, while they didn't like calling it this, boycotts were a pretty major tactic. Uh, There were lists made of objectionable content uh, comics, and kids or parents would, mostly kids actually, would go to uh, corner stores and ask them not to stock those comics. And although it, it rarely came to an actual boycott, because you're talking about, like, a grocery store, they don't want to piss everybody off. It's just like, you're gonna, you're going to tell everybody, like, I'm one of the good ones if I stop stalking this and the alternative is kind of implied? Yeah, all right. It really was usually that simple. And this started off uh, among uh, Catholic groups especially, and then it became a tactic of PTAs and other parent-organized groups. Uh, second tactic is a little more extreme. There were a few groups that did book burnings, um, and that's the thing. Like, there is a reason that I only say a few groups because the optics were bad, and actually, the way this plays out is really interesting because they know the optics are bad. Parents didn't want to be the ones seen as burning books, so they generally didn't. But what would happen is either they would nudge some of the good kids, or the good kids would have it in their own. Uh, minds uh, as the idea and they'd organize other kids convince everyone and store owners to actually hand over the prescribed books and then one of the kids would torture them uh, interesting because in every instance where the Tencent plague mentions book burnings the kids are the ones actually gathering the comics to hand in or burn themselves and almost always they're the ones who burn the, the books like it's actually very standard. Whoever brings in the most comics is the one who gets to light the pyre. Mm. Yeah. And I'd love to be able to say that this was just puppet mastering, that it was really just parents being like, hey, you should do this, and kids just kind of, okay. But it's divided loyalties is kind of the, is the phrase that uh, they use in the Tencent Plague. There are kids who are the the good kids and just want to impress their parents. They're the kids who hated comics, and there are some who liked comics, and there are some who went there and went to the burnings and were like, this feels weird. Or the ones who went to the comics were like, well, clearly there's something that I need to learn about these comics. So you had a divided child reader base, you had, and you had a divided adult opinion on this because good god book burnings less than nine years after the nazis uh it had bad optics and a lot of times like a newspaper would pick up hey we're gonna do this uh they're gonna do this and they it would 
get canceled and turned into just like mulching comics because the optics were that bad. The, the groups that mostly did this were uh, Catholic schools, uh, Cub and Girl Scouts in the mid-50s, and the American Legion did a, like, swap books in and then we'll burn them. Third major tactic was legislation, and this one falls into the same category of really controversial because as bad as it looks to burn books, it also looks really bad to legislate against books. And in, actually, interestingly enough, like, the way that people always, the people who are quoted uh, in the various sources I've read, it it's not just the visibility, like the way it looks, it's a genuine fear of a slippery slope that if we legislate against comics, that will be applied and can be stretched to other things. They, they were explicitly using the term censorship uh, pretty frequently, actually. And here's the thing about that. What that argument means specifically is that if there were a way to formulate the rules so that and the legislation so that it only applied to comics, a lot of people would be fine. Like the people who were actively impeding uh, legislation on this score, uh, including uh, Governor Dewey of California or of New York, uh, vetoed a couple measures because, like, no. The Supreme Court has said that you need to be very clear on in your language when you're saying what kinds of things are not allowed. Like, uh, it can't just be crime. It uh, One of the things that almost got through was giving a specific list of crimes before someone said, by the way, if you can't show murder, then what does, what does that leave for depictions of uh, Lincoln's assassination? But the stands, the things that held up legislation against comics from really being a thing, at least early on, was that people were afraid of overreach. It wasn't a genuine alliance to defend comics. That means that the legislation that did pass was narrowed and focused, kind of nibbling at the edges. Like there were, later on, there were uh, bans on like bundle-in kind of sales where comics were specifically uh, bundled in with as a bonus offer with something else. But the one of the bits that characterizes this is because they wound up being so narrowed and people were intentionally making this legislation super targeted they tended to really be focused on crime and horror books like the other two tactics that we've talked about before those were sort of catch-all like there were a lot of comics that went in the pile like even archie right. uh, got burned uh whereas the regulation really was uh focused on crime and horror books Regulation was pushed for a good while after 1947, uh, when you start getting the crime wave or the crime era. Then it cools off for a bit after the first wave fails, and then in the mid 50s it comes back with a vengeance when uh, horror comics especially get going. It never gets dropped, but the trick is that first chunk of time people are trying to figure out the formula to legislate against comics, and they can't quite figure it out fourth uh and this is a brief one occasionally there were police stings like if things got bad enough or if rather if public opinion got mad enough then cops would say well we've got these uh, obscenity uh rules on the book i guess we can just like go to the newsstands and uh, yep that's obscene <laughs> yeah and that didn't happen often and it mostly was like one-offs rather than uh like a hey we're going to keep coming through here, but it did happen. Uh, so I wanted to briefly talk about that. 
The other thing I want to talk briefly about is how comics responded to this. As mentioned, uh, they found another genre. Like, as comics, or as crime comics started getting a ton of heat, eventually, like, the public, public opinion was mad enough that uh, the comics industry said, well, let's switch to something else, which turns out to be uh, romance comics, which I'll talk in a bit. And also, the comics themselves, the crime comics were neutered. Uh, many stories now were just about the uh, the cops and the detectives, whereas before, the protagonists were a mix of lawmen and lawbreakers. The crooks had always lost anyways, but this was a change of where the focus was. Who are the characters that you're watching? Who do you have sympathy for? Which is another thing that's going to come up when the code actually comes through. Uh, third, they set up a comics code. No, not that one. Uh, <laughs> it was a toothless predecessor. The code itself, like, if you read through it, it actually reads really similarly to the 1954 comics code, and it's, like, also heavily based on the motion picture, uh... Code of ethics. I, I think it's the MPPC, and I don't remember what that stands for, but one way or another, the film code of what they could do and what they couldn't, uh, which makes sense. Like, all the comics code are heavily based on that code uh, from film, uh, but this version is so much less detailed and so much less stringent. And importantly, it didn't really do anything because not many uh, publishers were part of it and it kind of served as a front to convince parents that, hey, we're taking action. Don't worry, everything's fine. Uh, rather than being like a censorship czar. Now, there is an alternate way of uh, viewing it. The code could also be viewed as just plain underfunded and nobody being willing to go all in on it. Uh, the biggest publishers weren't part of that organization they weren't part of that code and if they had been maybe they could have like used the extra weight like hey hey sit down shut up we're doing this for the industry we're otherwise we're all screwed in the long run but that didn't happen now whether you view it as like an intentional front or just not having the power to do anything well there are different versions for that uh tencent plague says the former uh seal of approval posits the not enough power uh, argument but one way or another, after the initial hubbub goes away, after the, the that wave of legislation cools, well, actually no, uh, but one way or another, after that round of public anger and juvenile delinquency and rah, 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 once that cools down, there's nobody feels like playing ball with the code. Like they just kind of, they in, internally say, well, we followed the code and they put their little stamp on it, which means all of this is going to come right back up again. But the good news is we actually do get a little bit of a breather because the next genre is romance. This genre, like, hurts to lose later on. Uh, it sounds really interesting because uh, romance comics were really liberated. Uh, young women were taking the initiative. Uh, smart storytelling aimed a little bit higher in age instead of just being kids. Beca and because they were just, just, uh, you can't see me but I'm making air quotes, uh, aimed at girls, they got to push the boundaries and get away with it. Uh, stories where the heroines spend the weekend in a hotel with their boyfriends, come back home, and face no consequences, despite defying the social norms of the day. Like, these were taboos, but they had characters breaking the taboos of the day and not facing any, like, socially mandated repercussions for it. Uh, I mean, like, the whole thing that we saw, even in the crime era, like... 
the crime the criminals broke the rules but they always lost at the end here no the people who are the protagonists who are doing things that society says are not okay don't face repercussions and well they shouldn't because people falling in love is a thing that happens and that is a thing that should happen but it is interesting for this time and in these stories so to put this in a little bit of historical concept, eh, context, <laughs> Freudian slip, uh, this is coming a couple years after the Kinsey Report. Uh, so people were primed to talk more about sex and sexuality and push the lines of that taboo. Uh, so for those who don't know, the Kinsey Report was the results of a giant survey of people on sexuality in America. There were two versions of the report. The first was sexual behavior in the human male, and then later the same for women. Kinsey's now best known for the Kinsey scale, which measures sexuality between zero and six, exclusively heterosexual and exclusively homosexual. And the important thing is, like with Wortham talking about comics and saying these comics are bad for this kind of reason uh, from a moral ground, having a scientist lay out all this stuff about sex and how Americans interact with the concept and actuality and action of sex, it legitimized how people felt about it. And it wasn't just some dirty thing to hide, it was a thing that could be talked about. Uh, so you start having like a, I think, I, I don't know enough about this chunk, but I think this is widely considered like the start of some of the sexual revolution. Don't think all, but certainly, if nothing else, a whole bunch of people bought this book, a whole bunch of people talked about it. Uh, the other nice thing about this era is the backlash sputtered. Uh, there were still pushes towards legislation, but they kept running into the legal obstacles that we talked about. They hadn't yet figured out how to avoid First Amendment concerns. So all these rules that were being brought up, all the stuff that was trying to be pushed through to handle crime comics, during this period, doesn't go places. Also, the hysteria over juvenile delinquency had dropped, and the crime comics had toned themselves down, like we said. By this point, a lot of legal authorities were content to sort of live and let die. J. Edgar Hoover, who had been, like, briefly really big against comics, at one point said, like, as much that, you know, that I don't think if we banned comics, it would have any real impact on juvenile delinquency. So this is when things calm down, which means it's perfect timing that the next genre is horror. Yeah. Uh, and I do want to briefly talk about what else is going on in the background from a historical standpoint, like other more so, uh, bigger social trends as well, uh, before getting into horror, because this is really going to play a part in how that all happens. Like romance comics, this era feels like kind of a breather before everything gets going again. Because we've got the rise of TV. Mm. And in the rise of TV happens in the second half of the Golden Age. It's really getting going in the early 50s. Even if you don't have one at your house, you have access to it at bars or out and about. And that's important because it's going to be both a stage for moralizers to reach out to people and a competitor for comics. The other important thing to remember as we go into horror comics, as we go into the weird stuff and the moral panic, people felt under siege because this was the Cold War. When we're talking about 1947 to 1955 is sort of where we cover, uh, this is 
the early phase of the war, and there are a ton of losses right off the bat. If you wanted to feel under siege as American, you had good reasons, because in the period we're talking about, Czechoslovakia and China both flipped to the Soviets after the wall, the Iron Curtain comes down across all of Eastern Europe, after a whole bunch of those places had been promised that, oh yeah, you'll get democratic elections, no, nope, Communist Party's in power. Uh, but even after that, you have Czechoslovakia fall, you have China fall, uh, well, fall, remember that uh, your, your mileage may vary depending on how you feel about the Cold War, uh, but the Korean War was at best a draw, and the Soviets had both atomic and hydrogen bombs after being promised by various in, uh, members of the uh, government structure that no they're probably like 10 years away from the bomb no they had both the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb which was I believe a hundred times more powerful than uh, what was dropped on uh, Hiroshima but I'm not sure about that one way or another this is terrifying and people don't react well when they're terrified because a little bit later, I'm going to talk about McCarthyism. But that doesn't quite play in just yet. That's really going to play into the final stages of the moral panic over uh, comics. But for now, it's horror comics. Like I mentioned, this is where we have the era of sci-fi and fantasy. But the Banner Waver comics are all horror. They're Poe with extra razor blades and detailed visualizations. And sometimes the horror is just kind of inferred, like the razor blade story that I talked about. Nothing's really shown on on screen, but you know. Uh, but sometimes it's just inferred like that, yeah. Which, yeah. And this is where I get to introduce another character. So we talked about Wortham, now we talk about Bill Gaines. Bill Gaines was the head of EC, which was Entertaining Comics. He'd inherited it from his father, taken it on reluctantly, and then he becomes one of the main figures in the comics industry when people look back on it. It's interesting because he, he really is a deep... If you want to look at this era from like a heroic perspective where you have individual people who are the lens, he's the guy to go to. Like Because of what's about to happen here, uh, he has a lot of that rise and fall of comics. And he, they aren't the first ones to do horror comics, but Bill Gaines and EC are the ones who kickstart the fad this time around. They're the ones who put out the new trend in comics, is sort of what they called it. Uh, and it's interesting because Gaines comes off as like bombastic and pugnacious. I kind of picture him as like a John Romero executive type. Uh, he embraced the role of being a larger-than-life pa patron or paternal figure for his staff. EC put out the highest quality art, and they escalated the gore to keep grabbing attention. It has that kind of, that doom and id era of, oh, these are the rock stars who don't really care if they're liked, but ultimately did really want to be liked when the hammer started coming down. Uh... An example of the escalation of gore. So this is a quote uh, from Tencent Plague. One month's issue would depict, uh, depict a man's neck being slashed, and the next would have a decapitation. The one to follow would show a human head used as a bowling ball or a woman roasting her husband's body parts on a barbecue grill. Uh, and quoting uh, from publisher Stanley P. Morse, you did what you had to do, what moved him off the racks. And... That's what's gonna come back to bite comics, is this escalation in gore. 
uh, and that's when the moral panic gets rolling again. And yeah, this time around, it's not just crime comics, it's horror and romance comics as well, adding those into the mix. So let's talk about the template of actions that are about to be applied to comics. Let's talk about McCarthyism. So the important thing that I drew from all of this, uh, and this chunk is going to uh, rely a lot on Wikipedia, digging through and sort of understanding that and comparing what's said in there versus what's said about comics in Tencent Scare and in Seal of Approval. Comics Hysteria wasn't a subset of the Red Scare, but it does follow the same template of uh, what gets done against them. So let's touch on that first bit of not being a subset of the Red Scare. Uh, McCarthyism was all about communism, although it drew its support from a broad coalition, but at no point were comics really accused of being communist. There was that fear of moral degradation, but no one said this thing's going to make your kid a communist. Uh, they also didn't say the people who make these are communists. Comics instead face that separate accusation that they undermine respect for authority. So it's important to note comics crusaders are not necessarily one and the same as McCarthyists. Uh, and a bit of background, McCarthyism was the second Red Scare, uh, running from about 1947 until 1956, and you'll feel its impact for a goodly while after that. Uh, it was characterized by the belief that American communism was a national security threat, and the fear that heterodox thinking was a gateway drug to communism, and repression of communist-tinged thinking, and the persecution of people based on suspicions rather than convictions. That one's important. Uh, the first step in the second Red Scare can probably be considered Truman's fault, actually. Actually, really interesting. I didn't realize that one. Because he put out an executive order that said, uh, uh, 9,835, executive order 9835, uh, and 47, calling for federal employees to be dismissed if there was reasonable grounds to believe them disloyal. Key phrase. Reasonable grounds, not convicted of treason. Uh, and this lowering of the bar is going to be really important for comics because we'll see comics be convicted by public opinion for making kids violent and delinquent, even though none of the science backs it up, because suspicion is enough during a witch hunt. Following uh, the executive order later on, we get the start of the Hollywood blacklists in late 1947, and this is the House of Un-American Activities uh, that you always hear about. Uh, the HUAC held hearings and called experts to find out if Hollywood was run by communists. Ten people involved in film were called to testify on whether they were communists, but they refused to answer. They're the Hollywood Ten, and they're the reason, or it's not that they're the reason, but that instance of refusing to uh, testify on or answer whether they were communists is what inspired the creation of the Hollywood Blacklist, where communists were not allowed to work in Hollywood, period. It's worth noting. The Hollywood Blacklist was run by, or was instituted by the industry itself. It was a self-regulation. Very much what we're going to see with the code. It is the most effective thing that the government does to lock down an industry is to draw public ire towards it, to, to shine a light on it, uh, and then convince it that it needs to handle its own business. And it's also worth noting that this was also just a uh, set of precedent that 
the government could go on moral crusades, specifically by holding investigative hearings about an industry. So that's exactly what's going to happen with comics shortly. And it is worth noting, like, the government really did want people to, or industries to regulate themselves, even comics. Like, uh, the New York legislature pushed heavily for comics to regulate themselves. In 1951, it consciously viewed regulation as a secondary possibility and gave the comics industry time to adopt a comics code and enforce it. Like, I think, I think there was, uh... Uh, there was a recommendation made after an investigation in one session of uh, the legislature that, you know, like, here's the current situation. We don't necessarily know enough, but we really need the comics industry to regulate itself. Or next year, you might have to take action. Next year rolled around. No action taken. And it is worth noting, New York was where everything was, all the publishers were based. Which means that if there's legislation implemented there, everything is hit. And McCarthyism, we talked about, it's focused on communism or suspected ties to communism. Uh, frequent targets, labor leaders, government employees. Uh, again, not something that's leveled at, com at uh, comics much. And the interesting bit is going to be the timing. Because 1954, in April, is when the big hearings that McCarthy was holding uh, or that were being held for McCarthy essentially to duke it out with the army uh, were happening. April of 1954. That is right when, right there is when you have the uh, Good Night and Good Luck broadcast from Murrow. Uh, during the hearings is when you have the line from someone who McCarthy is bullying about uh, someone, one of his subordinates uh, is you have the line, have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? This is when, April 54, is right when McCarthy is at his peak and then crash. Because everyone sees him on TV. Because the hearings are televised. And everyone sees McCarthy is a bully and a manipulator. We're going to see that when Bill Gaines testifies before a committee, it doesn't go that well. Because he comes off as unprepared he comes off as contradictory and other people the people examining him as essentially uh, the people who have put comics on the stand are the ones who come across well TV is gonna play a huge part in this and that brings us to what I have written down as the finale it's the culmination of trends this is 1954 Seduction of the Innocent was published by Bertham uh, April 19th, 1954, two days before the committee or the subcommittee hearings that I'm going to talk about. Two days. However, it had been bubbling in the public consciousness for, I think, six months because an excerpt had been published uh, in a woman's magazine, uh, I think, six months prior. So this has been building for a while. People have seen horror comics are out there. They're getting riled up. And nothing's happening from the comics industry to make them think the comics are going to get any better in their mind. So Seduction of the Innocent comes out. What's worth noting is, from what, what we remember from it, has zero impact in the specific sense. Like, uh, what I knew going into this research was the implication that Bruce and Dick were gay lovers. And that if you looked at how the triangle of the shoulder was shaded, you'd see code for a woman's pubic hair. 
And yes, that's he had a he had a hate on for superhero comics. Nobody else does. None of those hysterical details come up in anything else, at least not in the Ten Cent Plague. What matters is that those book that this specific book and Wortham's testimony gives people license to talk more moralizing about comics. It gives the legitimacy to the crusade because a scientist said that it was okay. Much like how Kinsey's report gave legitimacy to talking more about sex. It's a scientist says this thing as a whole is problematic and corrupting our youth. We just happen to remember the BuzzFeed version. Actually, so the one other group that did talk uh, about superheroes and have problems with it, uh, I did mention uh, earlier on uh, Catholic groups were one of the early groups that mobilized against comics, and they had more issues with superhero comics than most other groups. So that's just kind of the way that one played out. And again, we'll see that the Moral Crusaders are arguing in bad faith, or at least they're working off of spurious arguments. When there's the uh, subcommittee uh, investigation that I'm going to mention or talk about, the investigators and the experts will take scenes out of context and they'll cherry pick panels. The best example of this is Wortham claiming that comics encourage racism by using racial slurs. So I'm going to give a content warning here for the rest of the episode because I am going to quote a slur here and uh, I'm going to later on quote a word that, while probably not a slur, ain't exactly a great word these days. All of these are just being used in the context of quotes, so your call, but beware, content warning. During the subcommittee hearing that Gaines was at, where really comics were on trial and televised as such, uh, Wortham claimed that EC was teaching children slurs like spick. What actually happens in the story of the whipping is that a racist white man gathers a posse to kill the son of a Mexican family who's been sweet on his daughter, but when they grab him from his house and kill him, it turns out they grabbed the man's daughter by accident. So they killed the daughter. It's, I mean, it's a morality play. It's a morality play of racism will come back to bite you, essentially. Uh, hate is uh, hate is a two-edged sword or yeah. something like that. I'm, I'm sure that's a quote. Uh, and the racist white folks, the villains of the story, are the ones using the slur. But here's where we get to discussions of tactics. You'll remember that one of the parts of the executive summary, I mentioned that Basically, comics creators shot themselves in the foot. This committee, so this committee was the United States Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, that old bugbear of JD Panic raising its head, uh, with two days of hearings on the impact of comics. So this wasn't the focus of the subcommittee, but this was certainly the bit that everyone remembers from it. So Bill Gaines was one of the few industry people to show up there. the hearing was on April 21st. It was two days after Seduction of the Innocent. Bill Gaines was interviewed after Wortham. Uh, the subcommittee had treated Wortham respectfully, perhaps even deferentially. And when Gaines was interviewed, he took the defense that was used later by video games and in the comics war or the culture wars over games and comics that followed that they're just comics, which meant that when Gaines tried to claim credit for the positive message in The Whipping... He tried to show that comics could be a force for racial justice in the world. It was a contradiction. Because he'd already said that comics didn't affect anyone to get out of the negative. But that meant 
couldn't claim credit for the positives. Right. His tactics were wrong. Uh, he tried to weasel through it and claim credit uh, because it was in the captions, but he discarded narrative impact earlier, and everyone saw through that. Side note, I fucking hate that line of thinking. Like, I'm sorry if you didn't notice that uh, I swear a lot because I hadn't earlier in this episode because it's all scripted, but I fucking hate the line of thought that it's just comics. And that brings up... So, that exchange was thoroughly lost by Gaines. That was a chance to say, look at the possibilities of art. And really, at this point, not many people are thinking of comics as art. Not even comics creators, really, somewhat, but not really. Uh, like, Will Eisner is probably the best-known example of people who really did think, hey, this is art. And that brings us to the final exchange, the one that sunk comics. I'm just going to quote all of it, because these were what the public latched onto. This exchange uh, between Chief Counsel Herbert Beeser, Gaines, and Senator Kefauver, uh, who's leading this uh, subcommittee, this is what becomes the rallying cry. This is what says, oh, these fucking comics people. Basauser, then you think a child cannot in any way, shape, or manner be hurt by anything that the child reads or sees? Gaines, I do not think so. Uh, there would be no limit, actually, to what you'd put in the magazines. Only within the bounds of good taste. Switching over to Senator Kefauver. Here is your May issue. There seems to be a, this seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up, which has been severed from her body. Do you think that's in good taste? Yes, sir, I do. For the cover of a horror comic. A cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding her head a little higher so that blood can be seen dripping from it and moving the body a little further over so that the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody. You've got blood coming out of her mouth. A little. And none of that, none of that, none of that is a defense to the people listening to it. First off, okay, like, everyone looking at, the majority of people watching that are going to be like, well, no, that's not in good taste at all. Like, what are you, are you crazy? Here's the important bit. There's a bit, uh, especially coming with, uh, as it is, with the arrival of heterodox ways of thinking and departures from moral strictures of the past as people are experimenting with new lifestyles and people are, uh, and American parents are seeing the ways that we grew up with are not the ways that our children are automatically thinking. He's setting himself up as the tastemaker. He's saying that comics could be absolutely anything, and he is the only one who can say this is good taste or not. He's not saying that that there is any other authority, any other like social agreement on this is what is reasonable that can be that he will accept. He is saying that he is the only one who gets to say what is in good taste, hmm. and that idea that comics could be absolutely anything and be sold to children like fundamentally what people are going to take away from that and what people did take away from that is you could put anything on the cover of a comic book and the people who make comic books would not feel bad about it unless it didn't sell and got a moral panic that's how you do it that's how yeah. that's like i have written like the literal next line in my notes is and that was pretty much that uh, within a few days after that, Gaines called a meeting of the publishers to figure out a plan because he knew walking out of it he'd screwed up. Like even during it, uh, he apparently 
uh, he had issues sleeping, uh, or more accurately, he took doses of stuff that let him not sleep as much. And because he went on later in the day and went on later than expected, he was winding down as he was getting pummeled, as he was getting questioned. And, like, as he walks out, uh, he knows he needs to do something. So he's the one who calls a meeting of publishers to figure out a plan. They set up an organization to monitor them. And then they quasi-turn on Gaines because the code that they start to write out specifically calls for not allowing publications of or titles that have the words horror and crime in the titles those were those were EC's thing that was what they did a lot of there were there were other things uh, one of which I'll get to in a bit but that was their thing and the organization that he had pulled together to try to avoid legislation immediately basically said we're gonna put a lot of your stuff out of business and so he leaves the he leaves the organization and he does it in spectacular fashion it's a moment like samson pulling the temple down around himself in august of 1954 he holds a press conference it's a few days before the comics magazine association of america is officially formed and he announces they're canceling all the horror books Canceling all, I think they're canceling all the crime books as well, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, and they're launching a new clean line. The line is, we are not doing it for business, or we are doing it not for business reasons, so much as th because this seems to be what the American parents want. And the American parents deserve to be served. It's a complete capitulation, but it comes across as a little bit of raging against the dying of the light uh, because he's acknowledging that he's not the tastemaker. But it's the way it's written about in Tencent Plague, it's not a capitulation in tone. It's throwing shade at everybody else. Not not the people who need to buy his stuff. Not at the public. But it's those other guys. They're getting their organization together. And they're just going to sell you more horror comics. They're just not going to have horror on the title. Stuff like that. Hmm. And it just seems like this glorious burn it down moment. However... <laughs> Eventually, the uh, situation proceeds enough that he does wind up having to join the organization and submit to the censors. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but here's the thing. Although the organization is being put together, although they're working on a code, and they have it out pretty quick. They have it out five weeks after the organization is officially formed. Uh, legislation's moving forward. Outrageous building. Sales are dropping like a rock. But first, before we get to the repercussions of that, let's, let's talk briefly about the Comics Code, because that is what comes out first. Before everything else hits, the Comics Code comes out. And unlike the previous organization, uh, the CMAA is funded well. Uh, and I'm going to spot through the conditions of the code, and then later on I'm going to introduce the man in charge of enforcing it. Uh, the key thing to note is that while the code is similar to the motion uh, picture production code, that's what it that's oh, okay. what it is. Okay, the MPPC. Uh, it was the Comics Code is much more specific and much more strict, and specifically, it's in the hands of a zealous censor. Going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, the code didn't want to show anything but an idealized suburban lifestyle. And 
from reading stuff. A uh, little spot check of uh, sort of what the code mandates. Uh, with regards to sex, nothing should inspire lust. So no poses, no illicit six re uh, sex relations, which I take to mean sex out of wedlock. And that's specific to the comics code. The MPC, MPPC just says adultery should never be glamorized. Comics code only. Parents should always be shown respectfully. We're going to hear that a couple times in this. Authority figures need to be respected. Uh, both the Comics Code and the MPPC prohibit going into the details of a crime to avoid inspiring copycats. It's kind of interesting. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the, what is it, the uh, CSI thing of, well, a whole lot of people know how to dispose of a body now. Or Breaking Bad. Mm. Like, how many people now know how to make meth? Mm. Yeah, that was a big concern for comics at this point. Uh, because there were a couple instances where at least the implication was that there were copycat things going on. Uh, the Comics Code goes further, saying that criminals should never be sympathetic or glamorous, and that nothing should undermine respect for legal authorities. And that's a strict one right there. Like, the idea that you can never have a glamorous criminal? I mean, for God's sake, that's Paradise Lost gone right there. Brutality and cruelty aren't allowed, so torture is a no-go. Uh, and the code specifically prohibited a list of supernatural creatures. Werewolves, vampires, walking dead, that kind of stuff. Uh, the code says, In every instance, good shall triumph over evil, and the criminal punished for his misdeeds. And, ouch. <laughs> like, if, if you ever want... Watchmen. Watchmen. Yeah, How did they get away with Watchmen? Oh, uh, because it's a graphic 80s. novel? No, that was the 80s. Uh, but they were still technically under the Comics Code. But at that point, Comics Code was defanged. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And both, interestingly, uh, both the Code and the MPPC strictly regulate the titles and in comics, the covers. Uh, they, because they wanted to present, like, that portion of it needed to be good. Uh, the use of crime in a title was restricted. It needed to be certain font size. Uh, and horror and terror were entirely banned. But here's the real problem. Like, a code doesn't mean anything. The question is who's enforcing it. And here's where we introduce the third character, Charles Murphy. He was a judge previously, and he handled his job zealously. He was not a publisher's ally. He was a moralistic watchdog. The person in charge of watching and enforcing the code had been lax, willing to let stuff go through for the story. Faded Comics would have been different. Instead, it wasn't just neutered. It was nitpicked and worse. And here's the story. Like, this one... This was a heartbreaker, and again, content warning here. Uh, it was a story with a moral of racial justice, starring a black character. Uh, it's actually a really nice, uplifting, like sci-fi one of uh, an astronaut sees a planet that is uh, divided racially. Uh, they're robots, uh, bringing in an extra couple steps removed, and eventually, it's like, you know, I'm sorry, I, you, I can't allow you to join this galactic federation. He gets back to his spaceship. And he takes off his helmet, and it's a black man. And it's that moment of, okay, wow, okay, so humans have actually managed to transcend it, and we've grown to recognize that racism is bad, and people need to move past it. And it, this comic had already been printed in the past. And EC brought the story to the censor because, like I said, they had to uh, end up joining the, the organization because things were that bad uh, and Gaines this is Gaines talking with Murphy 
He said, you can't have a Negro. I said, where in the code does it say that I can't depict a Negro? He said, I say you can't have a Negro. And after Gaines threatened to hold a press conference, Murphy, Murphy paused, but he wasn't willing to give in completely. He could publish with the black protagonist if he changed one detail, just removing beads of sweat, something entirely just petty, something petty. And Gaines said, fuck you, Hang, hung up on Murphy and published the story intact. And that was the kind of censorship czar that they had. That's the kind of person they had running, essentially running comics to a degree. And that was the end for Bill Gaines and for entertainment comics. Uh, he was out of money and he was broken and the new comics weren't selling. Tr going clean did not work. And we're going to see this across the industry. Sales tanked. Doesn't matter that they had uh, the code coming in. People, like, they had to have the code because sales without the code would have been catastrophic. Like, distributors weren't willing to ship anything or put anything out on shelves that wasn't from the code. But even with it, people hated comics. That it was not the thing. And he was done. Except he wasn't. Because here's the interesting bit. This is what people know William Gaines for. Because Mad Magazine. Hmm. They'd been publishing Mad as a comic book and actually got an, uh, a parody of Mad by another... Actually, I think it might have been a parody that they themselves launched. Uh, got them into some shit with cops at one point. But Mad could be rebranded as a magazine. And it could, instead of just parodying other comics, which was what it did initially, it could be a general satire of American life. And that's where Mad Magazine comes from, hmm. because and they kept it as the same like uh, the same issue numbering so that they could save money on the post office uh, registering the comic. But yeah, that's where Mad Magazine comes from. It's why it's a magazine and not a comic because that got them around a whole bunch of stuff. And yeah, EC is still around, and that seems to be what William Gaines is now known for is Mad Magazine. But for comics themselves, like things were kind of shit. There's a great line in the Ten Cent Plague that uh, that addresses how much worse the stories got because they had to strip out so much. Uh, they specifically like a lot of the trappings of bad got pulled away, blurring distinctions between good and bad. It purged the comics of not only the presence of Satan, but the need for God. Because if you can't have like a villain who genuinely seems bad, why do you need it? Why do you need good? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and although uh, most of the public outrage was over crime and horror comics, like that's what everybody kept talking about, Murphy took heavy action against the romance comics. Uh, and that's a quarter of the revisions he called for in the first two months were to desexualize women. Like the romance, it honestly seems like that's where romance comics got sunk was the fact that they got neutered without maybe even really needing to hmm. so that that one sucks uh, i mean all of it sucks but that there's an unnecessariness to that that sucks and even with all of this it wasn't enough there were more book burnings horror and crime comics comics were banned in many cities specifically in new york where the publishers were based like i mentioned use of crime terror horror and sex in comic book titles was banned 
instead of just restricting crime like it was in the comics code. And it prohibited lurid comics, including those focused on crime and horror and potentially applicable to superhero violence or general physical violence as well. The legal machinery was in there. It was just a question of how much would be enforced. Right. And that was that. Uh, that went to a bunch of other states. Uh, with the public hatred for comic books, the ability to keep uh, artists and writers on staff dropped. Uh, and with creative restrictions, they didn't have much of a reason to stay. It had been the freedom of the new medium that drew many of them in. It was done. And we don't, even now, like we're finally starting to see a bunch more uh, kinds of comics come out. But think about how many, how if someone says, oh, this is really interesting kind of comic to you. It's like, oh, it's a, it's a mystery, it's a noir, or it's a romance comic. That still feels new. Right. Rather than as something that was the dominant genre and the medium at one point that blows my mind i i may be misremembering this but i think it was at one point uh it was either romance to crime or horror to romance that i'm thinking of i think i think it's horror to romance uh like two-thirds of comics were horror and a third or so with some other stuff in there was romance something like that it's just those other genres were absolutely titanic at one point right and gone yeah we don't normally see those at all i think image and maybe dark horse are the only two mm -hmm. companies that you can probably get something similar to those at yeah, or vertigo maybe but it feels separate and then you also run into like the the quasi monopoly uh DC format of dc have, yeah. and marvel where everything else is Oh, that exists? It serves the brand in, some, in one way or the, mm -hmm. other, of the other. Yeah, and all the fact that those two are superheroes and you just have other genres like speckled right. in. But yeah, that's that's the story of the comics crash and the comics code. And then what we're going to get to next is characters post the code. Oh, I'm so psyched. I'm so psyched because it's also... Uh, what year is uh, Aquaman from? 59. Okay, so five years after... or. Five years after code implementation. Right. When things are probably a little bit more bouncing back. Because that's when Kennedy is also, like, doing the, hey, give me science thing. Right. So, we're going to be talking about a lot. We may have a plan for the type of characters and the, the ones that we cover first. That will be kind of in a directed path. But we wanted to do this episode because it's important for the history of the industry and kind of why things change why the industry retcon yeah oh that's a good way to put it it's it's yeah. an industry retcon because everything has to change they all have a crisis they all have their secret war this is this is the meta contextual crisis for the industry and we're gonna see what the difference is between the two and i think that's important for everyone to know so, because context is great. Because if we just went into the Silver Age, we'd be like, why the hell did they change it? Because between when we stop and between when we pick up, there's nine years of litigation, fear, and book burnings. That's why. <laughs> so, we're going to leave it there. Uh, this is a longer episode than normal, but we're going to keep it longer because this is important information. There's no real need to prune too much of it because it's all relevant. 
And I'll have the uh, script online, and I think it's like seven pages, so right. it's not actually that long of a read. Right. So we'll have all those things available for you. Thank you again for listening. We're excited to start on our new journey, our new path for the podcast. And uh, yeah, you have anything? Thanks for sticking with us on a bit of a bummer episode. Like, yeah. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of stuff I learned in this one that I did not know, and man... There's loss. Yeah. So, thanks again. Get hype. <laughs> Get hype for the Aquaman. Because that's coming at you next. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's a phrase that I don't think anyone besides you could ever have said. Get hype for the Aquaman. <laughs> Do it. DC Detectives can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. To stay in the know, check out our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and DCDetectivesPodcast.com. It was a war of words, and whatever we said, it wasn't enough. Parents were afraid of the complexity of the world they were creating. The world of comics and superheroes was falling apart. But worse, the West was turning on itself, covering itself with leeches to bleed democracy of any communist influences. In the end, as we stumbled out of the committee, Murrow's words echoed in our ears. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were, for the moment, unpopular. <laughs>